Welcome to the sermon podcast of South Hills Church in Costa Mesa. My name is Chris Kretzu, and I'm the campus pastor here. Thank you for carving out the time to listen to this today. I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged, and ultimately that you'll have a deeper sense of God's love for you. I'll be back after the message is over, but until then, I hope that you enjoy this episode. With that being said, we're going to jump into today's message, and we have been talking about finances over the last few weeks, and and we're talking about finances not because um, we want to uh, get something out of you. We're talking about finances because we believe that God actually wants to transform and bring a sense of wholeness and flourishing to every aspect of our lives. Um, And I've made good on my promise that the last two sermons have not been about tithing, and today's is not either. Uh, and so if that's if you're waiting for that to happen, that's not today either. And there's only one week left, so I'll let you do the math on what's going to happen. But, uh, but we are talking about this because this is really something that we believe God wants us to understand. And, and the reality, what I want to talk about today is that our stuff, our stuff in, in many ways is killing us. The stuff that we own, the stuff that we have, the stuff that we are trying to attain, the stuff we are hoarding, the stuff we are refusing to let go of. Uh, I've got some crazy little numbers here I want to share with you guys. The average American home includes more than 300,000 individual items. Our closets average 103 items per person, even though every study says we only wear approximately 20% of our wardrobe. The average 10-year-old owns more than 238 toys, but only plays with 12 regularly. And if your kids are anything like mine, it's just the box that the toys came in, like it's never the actual toys. Uh, One of the fastest growing real estate markets in the past 40 years are rental storage units. Despite the fact that the American home is 1,000 square feet larger than they were in 1973, Uh, Not one of us really wants to admit that we are materialistic. Nobody would really put that on themselves. It's not a fun thing to think about. And and we can see it in other people pretty easily. But I'm just, you know, I just like my stuff. It's not materialistic. It's a different thing. It's a different conversation. I don't want to have to look under the, the, the cabinet that's underneath my sink or look into the closet or step into a garage that's stacked with things. If we did, most of us would observe physical space bursting at the seams with stuff. And it's interesting because we think a lot about the ability to get things or buy things or have things as a goal. We want to be able to get the things that we want. But the reality is, is that this generation of Americans is the most stressed out and overmedicated and depressed generation in history. And we have more stuff than ever before. In an article for American Psychologists, it said, our becoming much better off over the past four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased well-being. Compared with their grandparents, today's young adults have grown up with more uh, more affluence, uh, slightly less happiness, and much greater risk of depression and assorted social pathology. Our compulsion towards American consumerism and materialism is a spiritual sickness. And really, it's fueled by the belief that we are not enough, 
There is a lie that we continue to hear that we are not enough. If we are thinking about it from a spiritual standpoint, there's this lie that you are not good enough. You are not able to be loved. Your, ba- your past is so bad that you can't possibly be loved in your future. But if you think through it from the advertising and marketing firms around the world, you are told constantly that you are not cool enough or smart enough or happy enough or sexy enough or pretty enough or loved enough. But you will be if you buy this thing, if you get this thing. Uh, And these ads are created masterfully to convince us of these things. We don't even necessarily realize what they're doing. Um, you know, there is nothing in my mind that correlates puppies with beer. But when I see a Budweiser commercial, I don't know what I want more. A puppy, which I don't like, or Budweiser, which I don't like. So there is this, re- there's this reality where we are being kind of sold this idea. Um, I mean, it's my uh, younger son, when he plays games on an iPhone or an iPad, they're usually free games. And free games always have tons of ads. So he's playing a game. And every time an ad pops up, he asks me, can I get this game? I'm like, bro, you're literally playing one right now. You're, you are, and it's not just that there's one. on. The, you have, a, you know, 50 games to choose from. And so there is just this sense that we are always kind of being told this idea that we don't have enough or that we are not actually enough. And, and so it starts to create this thing inside of us. We look around and we see what others have and we start to compare, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but we have this kind of tendency to see in them or in their life or in their home or in their car, and, and it, it really starts to get inside of us. In my neighborhood, we live in an apartment. We love our apartment. We love our neighborhood, and I see people that appear to be half my age, and which is weird to be able to say that legitimately now, and, uh, and they are pulling their very nice cars into their very nice houses. And so I can only assume that they are drug dealers based on, I mean, it's like I, I rack my brain trying to figure out what is it that you do? How can you, how can you afford this? How long have you been saving for? You know, there's these questions that I have and, and I don't have answers, but I make all kinds of assumptions because like I said, they're half my age. So I must have failed. I must have done the wrong things. I must have been prioritizing the wrong things. And there's some truth to that in my life, for sure. But the reality is, is that things are not always what they seem. Warren Buffett, not Jimmy's brother, a very wealthy man, Warren Buffett, said it this way, which I just always think is so funny. He said, you never know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. And it's really kind of getting at this point of like, we have this assumption that we are all playing by the same rules that we are all working the same way, that we have all utilized the same resources, that we all have, you know, whatever it might be. But when we actually look and see, uh, or if we were actually to discover maybe, you know, how, whose car is that actually? Uh, Whose house is this? Is this, it doesn't mean that they don't deserve to live there, but we actually don't know. Just because I can't afford to buy the 17 bedroom house in my neighborhood doesn't mean that they can. I don't know how they're living in there. And so we start to look, we make these comparisons, and we just assume, well, if they've got it, or if they're driving it, or if they're living in it, and I can't, then I am not enough. And the things that I have worked for, or earned, or purchased, or whatever it might be, are also not enough. 
I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' words paraphrased. He says, you are blessed when you are content with just who you are, no more and no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. And there is a sense for us where we start to recognize the, 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 the beauty of contentment, the beauty of recognizing what we have, of who we are, of what we've been entrusted with, of what we've been able to achieve so far with, uh, with what we have been dealt in life, our, our jobs, our careers, our schooling, our relationships, etc. There is a sense of recognizing that we are proud owners of everything that can't be bought. And I think as a parent, I often fall into this trap of believing that if my kids have more than I did, that they will have a better life than I did. And so there's a sense for me where it's like, I want to give them the things that I didn't ever get to have. I want to give them the experiences. I want to give them the, you know, whatever it is, whether it's stuff or experiences or different kind of relational components. Uh, but oftentimes it comes down to stuff. And I think for me it does, especially because like I've shared, I grew up in a home where we didn't have a lot. There was um, a lot of times where money was really tight, really tricky. And so, um, you know, it just wasn't an average thing to be able to go out to eat whenever we wanted. It wasn't the type of thing where my kids could just eat the food or where I got to just eat. Like the only place we, and this is, I was thinking about this a couple months ago. There was one restaurant we would go to, and I use the word restaurant loosely where my parents said, you can buy whatever you want off the 49, 59, and 69 cent menu. And that was Taco Bell. And I had free range at Taco Bell, and it was glorious. And this was before they had Baja Blast and all these types of things. But that was, I mean, so there's a sense for me as, as I've been kind of going through this content and thinking about it, and, and I think that one of the reasons why I love to be able to take my kids out to eat, even if it's just Chick-fil-A, is because there's a sense of, and I remember not always being able to have those types of things. And so I get to now give that to them. I get to give them more than what I have or what I had. And so that must be making their life better, right? So we know if we really remove ourselves from our day-to-day -day choices that more is not necessarily better. More does not equal better in a lot of areas of our lives, in a lot of aspects of our lives. We feel the need to, to do better, or at the very least, keep up with the people around us. Everyday luxury has become the new normal. Things only the wealthy among us did a short time ago or things that we assume everyone gets to do now. Um, I've told a few stories about various cars that we've had and my son's interactions with them. Uh, during COVID, um, one of our cars got stolen and it got totaled and the whole thing is a crazy story, but we got a, a the newest car to us that we had ever had. Uh, it's a 2012 Honda Pilot and uh, yeah, it's very nice. Um, it's only 14, 12 years old. How many? I can't do math. I'm a preacher. Uh, but our older son, just about six months ago, found out that the front seats heat. And let me tell you, that kid feels very fancy. 
And it doesn't matter what the temperature is outside. As soon as he gets in that seat, he pushes that button. And I was like, dude, you don't need to heat that up. That smell does not need to simmer and whatever is happening. But, but there is this sense where it's like, man, I remember, you know, when we got the cars, like, yeah, that's cool. But I remember when that was like a, a brand new feature. And now we all have it. There's these things that used to be the luxury in cars, and now they're just the standard. But that's true of a lot of our lives. A uh, Stanford ex, uh, expert on adolescence talked about how many children now have privileges that were once reserved for royalty. Everyone expects to be treated like a king, but it actually produces materialistic people. And again, I don't know that any of us would say like, yeah, I'm materialistic. So I just want us to kind of read through a few ideas of what materialistic people do, the ways that they act. They focus more on stuff than they do on people and relationships. Materialistic people genuinely believe the more stuff that they have will make them happy. Uh, they care less about the utility of their stuff and more about how people react to it. It's less about how good it is or how much I actually use it or how functional it is, but really the statement that it makes. Materialistic people want too many of the wrong things and often will compromise their values to get those things. Some of these things start to maybe hit a little bit closer to home. I think that this is maybe what Paul, the apostle who wrote a lot of the New Testament, was talking about. This verse we looked at last week in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. There is a sense where the pursuit of things, or the pursuit of wealth, or the pursuit of Whatever it is that's going to help us feel like we are enough ends up actually piercing us with many sorrows. We end up in difficult situations with bills that we have to pay, with things that we are chained to that we can't escape from because we thought that it would make us feel some kind of way. It would make us feel like we're enough. This isn't who we want to be, and it's not who we want our kids to be. But does that mean that we have to all live lives like monks, where we live in robes and own nothing. We were down in San Juan Capistrano on Friday, and uh, I, I went to the mission for the first time ever. You guys, how many of you guys have been to the mission in San Juan? Hey, uh, this is nothing to do with the sermon. You should go. It's beautiful in there. Um, but it was just so fascinating to be walking through these rooms where there was almost nothing and reading about the way that they would live in the space and, and, and they would live this way because they uh, requested nothing and they shared almost all that they had. And so there was a sense of, you know, abject poverty as, a, as it comes to the amount of stuff that they had. And so is that what we are all supposed to experience? I don't think so. Paul, again, in First Timothy, a little bit Later on, verse 17, he says, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So there's a sense that man, God is giving you what you need, and, and there's a sense of enjoyment that we should have with what we experience in life. It's not about, uh, you know, just some sense of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, be nothing, have nothing, uh, be as miserable as possible, so I'm not tempted to enjoy stuff, there's this reality where, even, I mean, even in James, it says that 
God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. There's an enjoyment aspect of life that we should experience. We should experience these things. And we should not be putting our trust in stuff, in money. We should not expect these things to give us what we can only really experience from our Heavenly Father. There's a, another research uh, article that we were looking at this week, and it talks about how spoiled kids tend to have four major things in common. These are kind of the four things that go into someone being spoiled. Uh, the first one is they have parents who make their decisions, solve their problems, and absorb their consequences. Just let that sit for a second. Second one. They have very few rules that govern their behavior or schedules. Kind of get to do whatever they want, basically whenever they want. Third one, they have very few chores or responsibilities around the house. The fourth one, they have a lot of material possessions and continue to get more. The article talks about how they don't necessarily all have to be all four of those things at the same time, but there's a combination of these things that's found in all, uh, all children that we would kind of identify as spoiled. And, and I would say that, that these things are all found in adults that we would point at and say are spoiled or greedy or obnoxious or whatever word we want to use because we don't call very many adults spoiled. We look at people and we say, man, feel like they take their responsibilities very seriously. And it makes them act a certain way. And I don't like being around those types of people. Man, it seems like they are always just getting more stuff. Man, it feels like they don't really have any rules in their life. Like they kind of just do whatever feels good in the moment. And nobody, no thing, no kind of rule of life is guiding or directing them on how to live what choices to make. We, we think those things about people all the time, don't we? I know I think I'm about you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But we do, we have those, th those thoughts, those perceptions about people. And so it's not just about kids becoming spoiled. It's actually about what does it look like for us to not be spoiled? The interesting thing, out of all four of these, only one of them has to do with money. The rest of them all have to do with, you know, responsibility, with rules, with the way we treat others. Uh, it's not always about having a lot of stuff that makes us spoiled. It's actually about the way that we engage relations with people, the way we value people. I want to look at this principle that Paul taught in another passage. It's the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He gives us this kind of insight and this a goal of how to live. And for the last few minutes that I've got, I want to I talk about this with us. He says in verse 11, make it your goal in life, uh, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. It's interesting. Because in some ways, this feels like the opposite of what the world at large wants us to live. 
that we should live loud, flamboyant, boisterous lives. We should post everything and everyone on social media. We should always make our opinions and our preferences known. They say, no, live a quiet life, mind your own business, work hard. And people that aren't even Jesus followers will respect the way that you live. There's a growing body of research that talks about human happiness. And uh, I shared this in a sermon probably about a year and a half ago, but I don't know if anybody remembers anything I said last week, letter than a year and a half ago. But studies have found that about 50% of a person's happiness is defined by genetics. We all are kind of differently uh, predisposed to the, a, a level of happiness. And you guys know this. You guys maybe have siblings that you can look at and be like, yeah, this one just has always seemed less happy. Or this one has always seemed more happy. Or maybe you have kids and you see those differences. Or it's, there's a genetic aspect of the way that we are wired. 10%, so that's 50, 10% is determined by our circumstances. Money, health, relationships, physical appearance. That's a really small percentage. And what they found is that the, um, the happiness that we get from achieving things or from good circumstances wears off within two months at the longest. So 10% of your happiness, of your sense of fulfillment has to do with the stuff that you own or wear or, or how good things are in the moment. 50% is your genetic disposition. And 40% of human happiness is determined by intentional activity. Almost half of how happy you are is determined by the things you do on purpose, the way you live on purpose, the, the intentional way that you approach life. This is a, a big margin. This is a significant amount of power that you and I have to decide how happy we feel, how fulfilled we feel, how, how whole we feel. There is this sense and. And we get to define that by our choices, by the way that we live. It's, it's not about the stuff that we get or the stuff that we have or the stuff we're able to save. It's actually just about the, the choices that you and I get to make and how we navigate the day-to-day -day life. And Paul tells us how to live. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business, working with your hands. And then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you won't need to depend on others. I want to just look at these there's four kind of categories here. The first one is live a quiet life. I think another way of saying this is be a person that's known more by um, what you do than by what you say. It's less about what you post or what you shout or the opinions that you give and more about the way that you actually live your life. And we know this. We, we all know people that we look at their life. Maybe we look at their marriage or we look at their kids and we say, man, they are doing something right. We've got close friends that we talk to all the time because their kids have turned out mostly okay. And, and they're older and out of the house and they've got careers and we're like, oh yeah, please help us. Tell us what it is. 
there is a sense for us of, of, of how do we live a life that's defined, that's, that's known, that's recognized more by what we do, by our actions, and just by the things that we are saying. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk, and living a quiet life doesn't mean that you should become Amish and, and all these types of things. That's not what I'm saying. But the reality for us is I feel like a lot of times we fall into this trap of believing that a lot of noise or a lot of commotion or a lot of movement equals some sense of health or happiness or fun. We talk about everything we do. We take pictures of everything we do. We brag about everything we do. But we don't need the approval of others. It's not going to give us that thing that we're really looking for. And it's also equally important, maybe more so now than ever, for us to avoid stirring up trouble with others. We feel not only justified, but we feel like it is required for us to make sure that everyone knows our opinion on everything. Of what we agree with and what we disagree with, of what we think and feel about who is around or running or campaigning or running the office or whatever it is, there is an invitation for us to be quiet. We don't have to say everything that we think. As much as we may believe that we are right. In the book, The Opposite of Spoiled, which we've been talking a lot about, it says that we should show our children how to be steady, humble, and reliable. We should show them. Meaning, we should be steady, humble, and reliable. Make it clear that when we make a commitment, we stick with it. Make it clear that we don't have to brag or trash talk about the things that we're good at or the sex, uh, success. That was close. Uh, I mean, either, really. You don't have to brag about either of those things, I guess. The third one is to set the expectation that when they mess up, they need to make it right with that person. And we can tell them this as much as we want, but if they don't see us living this way, then why would they think that they need to do those things? Living a quiet life is not just about volume. It's about the way we're engaging with people. The second one is to mind your own business. This is the opposite of what we want to do because we want to know everybody's business. We want to know what's happening. We want to know the celebrities, stuff, the culture. We all are very aware of what's happening with Travis and Taylor all the time. And the only reason why there's that much access to what they're doing is because people want to know everything. And it's not just them. It's, it's about all aspects of our lives. We have friends who um, this coming week are going to Disney World. and uh, other friends who went two weeks ago, and they have uh, our friends who are going are bothered because they haven't posted their pictures. So they're like, "Well, we need to know what you guys did so that we can know what we should do." There's a sense of like, "I need to be updated." I mean, there, I, it would be wrong of me just to show up to Disneyland without a plan and a strategy. I've got to read blogs and follow, you know, Disney adults and and see what the plan is. We 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 can choose to mind our own business. 
We want to see what did you do? What are you wearing? Where did you go on vacation? I want to see it. I want to admire it for a second. And I want to envy it and judge it and then hate you a little bit for it and then hate myself for being so wrapped up in it. We are driven by comparison. And my, uh, Paul saying, mind your own business. It's okay. We can celebrate what people get to do and we can enjoy and affirm and all these things, but you don't need to become overwhelmed with others' actions. You can live by contentment, not comparison. A mentor pastor of mine, he, he likes to say, there is no win in comparison. And then he has this phrase that has been ingrained in my mind. When he talks about comparison. He says, you can break up the word comparison and say, when I compare, I sin. Want to be clear for any theologians in the room? Comparison is not a sin but it opens the door for us to start to envy, be jealous, and to become discontent and to grumble against what we have, what God has given us. And that actually is a sin. Comparison will not get us what we are looking for. There's another scientific study, and I think it's so fascinating that all of these things are backed up with science. But when individuals were confronted with enviable scenarios, or situations, when they felt envy, they tracked brain regions that involved registering physical pain being triggered. The higher the subjects rated their envy, the more vigorously flared the pain nodes in their brain, and I'm not going to read all these scientific words, and related areas was triggered. There's a sense for us where it's not only just a spiritual pain, but it's a physical pain. We start to compare and then feel envy on the other side of that. The biggest way we can live with contentment is by being grateful with what we have. The third thing that Paul says is that we need to work with our hands. In other words, don't expect that everything's going to be given to you. And I say this all the time to my kids, but nobody says this to me. The things that I want, the things that I desire, the things I want to achieve, I have to work at this. I have to lean in. I have to put in time. And none of us like putting in time. None of us like waiting. And when we work, it's not only for us. When I work, it's not only for me. But when I work, it's actually for the good of others also. When you work, when you go to your job, it's actually for the good of others in your community. Your work is not only beneficial for you and what your needs are, but it actually supports and cares for the community. We were made to contribute to the people around us. And again, I think about this in relation to parents and kids and, and the chores that we do or don't give them. The reality is, is that so many times now there's conversations about, well, I don't want to overload them with too many things because I want them to be able to succeed at school or with their grades or with their, their classes or whatever. And there's not really any proof that that's actually a successful way of approaching it. In 1995, 49% of teenagers had jobs between 16 and 19 years old. And in 2015, less than 15% of teenagers had jobs. Who's paying for all of the stuff that they're doing? Uh, and, and is it helping them? 
Is it actually helping them be able to flourish in that stage of life? We have to work with our hands. And then the fourth thing is that Paul says, people will respect you. He says, even unbelievers will, will respect you. And he, he doesn't say that they'll respect you because of how spiritual you are. He says they will respect you because of how financially reliable you are, because of the wisdom that you approach with your stuff. And so this is the challenge for us this week, for us to recognize that we have a significant amount of control over the happiness that we experience. And it is not found in stuff, definitively. It is not found in stuff. It is found in an intentional way of approaching life and relationships. And Paul tells us, here's how we can do this. Live a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands. People will respect you. I think that one of the ways that we can reinforce this the most is, again, through the community that we choose to be a part of. The relationships that we have around us, whether it's the friendships in your life, the people that have the same values, and, and you get to spend time around these people, and, and it doesn't trigger you to continually be trying to get more or, or achieve more or, or hold more, but a sense of, no, we can, we can continue to experience the hope and wholeness that God desires for us. John 10, the full life that God desires for us with what we've been given. We can experience that level of contentment. And so the challenge for us to really think about, and it's fitting because we are relaunching small groups and Rooted and, and all of these opportunities this week, but this week's challenge is to spend time with people who reinforce your values and set limits on what causes you to compromise your values. Be intentional about being around people that reinforce the values that you've decided are for you, for your, uh, your family, your kids. And be intentional about setting the limits so that you don't accidentally begin to compromise those things. This is my challenge, and, and I think that if I were to add anything to that, it would be for us to consider those four categories that Paul laid out in 1 Thessalonians. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands, and experience the respect of others. And I would just say, what would it look like for us to consider which one of those things in my life do I need to actually pay a bit more attention to? Which one of those things am I most tempted to be out of pocket which one of those things maybe is the one that, I, that I'm not experiencing or seeing the most in my life? I really believe that as we step into this space of, of submitting our entire financial reality, the stuff, the resources, the money, as we submit this to our Heavenly Father, that we'll experience hope and health in a way that we've not found in any other thing. That's my prayer for us this morning. Let's bow our heads together. Well, regardless of where you may be at in your faith journey, I believe that everyone has a next step that they can take. If you'd like more information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, 
information about getting baptized or maybe even attending a Discover class to grow more in your faith, you can visit us online at southhills.org forward slash Costa Mesa and then scroll down to the next steps section. If you'd like more information about tithing or supporting South Hills financially, you can visit southhills.org forward slash giving. Thanks again for listening today, and I hope that I get to see you soon.